I just want to go into this idea of randomness. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Things happen at random. It's 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 mind-bogglingly perplexing. Random. Random. Ran- randomness. Without a particular plan or pattern. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low, near and far, deliberately and randomly on the internet, the airwaves, podcasts, and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. So much of life is determined by pure randomness. I love the idea of control. I think we all do to some extent which is why I don't smoke, but I do take vitamins and exercise often, that kind of thing. Because in my head, I think if I do the right things, I can avoid the bad things, even though I know life is random, for better or worse. If you're the one who won the lottery, randomness has done you a solid. If you're the one awaiting a biopsy result, needless to say, it's hell. Today on ReSound, two stories in which random events change lives forever. Stay with us. On a beautiful day in February of 1997, a group of four young men decided that, even though it was a very touristy thing to do, they would go up to the top of the Empire State Building. Two were in a band together, a Dane named Christopher and a native New Yorker named Matt. Matt also brought along two childhood friends, Seth and Ben. What happened in the observatory that day was as random as it was terrifying and cast a very long shadow over everything that came after. Producer Leah Tao met this group of friends six months before that February day, and she brings us their story. It was a Sunday, February, winter day, unseasonably warm, very bright and sunny, very sunny. And it was one of those days that makes you think spring is coming. And even though we grew up in the area, we still like to sometimes do the touristy things. That's Seth talking. So the four of us decided on a whim, it's such a beautiful day, let's go up to the Empire State Building. And uh, we took the elevators up to the 86th floor. We encountered uh, this man, an older gentleman, who approached us and asked where the Statue of Liberty was. This is Ben talking. Matthew really was the one who engaged with him and, you know, pointed out where the Statue of Liberty was and... The man's questions were friendly and Matthew's answers were friendly. He asked us whether we were Italian or American. Are you American? Are you Italian? We answered. I think Matthew said, well, I'm American. Um, And Matthew asked him where he was from. And I think that was more or less the extent of the conversation. And then this man took out a semi-automatic 380 Beretta handgun and shot Christopher in the back of the head execution style and shot Matthew through the front of his head and somehow our friend Ben who was in between them was not shot Matthew and Chris were lying there in pools of blood you know seizing and choking and the injury was you know to the head and very graphic and you know the amount of blood was uh, very overwhelming but I was trying to stay with them and talk to them. At some point, I had the presence of mind to call uh, Matthew's father. 
while I was up there and, uh, you know, made a callback call. And uh, Matthew's stepmother at the time, he answered. And I just, you know, started, you know, telling her to get Peter Matthew's father on the phone. And I guess I was also able to find out what hospital they were taking Matthew to. So I think I called back. I think I found that information out from the paramedic and and, and was able to uh, to call them back and tell them that. Good evening, everyone. First tonight's top story. A gunman opened fire at random on the Empire State Building's observation desk. Eight people were shot. One is dead. Joe Avalar is live at the Empire State Building with the very latest on this story. Joe? Paramedics rushed the injured out of the Empire State Building after a 69-year-old gunman opened fire on people. Eight people shot. A man in his 20s killed. The gunman shot himself in the head. He's in Bellevue now. Why the gunman opened fire has been a matter of some controversy, which we'll return to later. He died from his self-inflicted wounds at Bellevue Hospital. Matt was also at Bellevue, in a coma from the shot to his head, but hanging on to life. The man in his 20s who'd been killed was Christopher. Back in Denmark, his mother Jane was on an overnight ferry on her way home from Norway. We were on a boat from Oslo to, to Frederikshavn, and it was very stormy. And as, as soon as you get out of Oslo, Fjord, That's the Oslo Fjord. You can really feel the storm. So I went down to my bed and was lying there and said to myself, you have to think of something really nice in order not to get seasick. And I was thinking of Christopher being in New York with his friends, playing music, having nice times, and try to imagine what exactly they were doing and how pleased he was with everything. And that was exactly the time when he was shot. That was so horrifying to think of. And I thought he was happy, having a nice time. And he was lying on the top deck floor of Empire State Building. Uh, it was awful. He meant, I can't say everything because I have two other lovely boys, but he meant so very much to me. Back in New York, Matt was undergoing emergency brain surgery. The bullet had gone straight through his brain, in one temple and out the other. And now his brain was swelling, and that'll kill you so the doctors had to remove a chunk of his frontal lobe to save his life. Initially, there was very little hope that he would survive, or that he'd be anything but a vegetable if he did survive. The doctors prepared his parents for this. And hundreds of people started showing up at Bellevue to see him. Matt had grown up in New York, and he had many fans and friends, and the hospital provided a room just for people who came to see Matt. Mayor Giuliani sat by his bed and held his hand. It was a media story and a bit of a madhouse. Seth was camped out there for weeks by the side of the guy who'd been his best friend since they were 14. I met Matthew in high school, sex ed class. And because his last name started with G and my last name started with G, we were placed beside each other. And every day the teacher would describe things that were embarrassing and sensitive and we would all kind of blush and put our heads down. 
And not only would he answer the teacher's questions about sex, but then he would start talking about his own personal experiences. And I was just astounded. And I just thought, wow, this is an interesting guy. And if half of what he says is true, he's already lived a remarkable life at the age of 14. Matt's womanizing ways didn't diminish over the years, and this created a bit of a problem while he was lying in a coma at Bellevue. A lot of women from all over the world started showing up and saying, where's my boyfriend, where's my boyfriend? And some of the other women would say, your boyfriend, that's my boyfriend. And so meanwhile, you know, Matthew was upstairs in the ICU holding on for dear life, and I was trying to uh, make peace among uh, his various uh, girlfriends. To everyone's amazement, Matt came out of the coma after just five days, with all his cognitive skills intact. It took a little time, of course, but soon he could walk, talk, play guitar, and no one could believe it. But Matt himself had no memory of the shooting, and he was waking up to a shocking reality. I said to my father, this is five weeks after the shooting, I said, Dad, you know what's weird? Thomas is here, who played bass in the band. Anthony's here, who played drums in the band. But where's Chris? And he started crying. He said, Matt, Chris was shot. What hospital is that? And I found out he died. It was, uh, do you know what OCDs are? Obsessive compulsive disorders? That's when it started really bad for me. Because the week before we played in uh, Ithaca, Utica, in New York City, and the way up to Ithaca, he said, there are two things I never want to do in New York. And I said, what are they? And he said, I never want to go to the top of the Empire State Building or the World Trade Center. And I convinced him to go that day. It was so bad. Like, I, I don't even know. It was just terrible. Uh, have you ever had OCDs? Uh, well... For example, if I would go under an overpass, I had to change my breath. When I, and if I didn't do it, I was f oh, furious I didn't do that. When I'd be in a car, I would only breathe when there was nothing to my right. Then i go, <gasps> <gasps> Also, like, if I look at that, which is 12-12, I would somehow make it add up to 9. So I'd be, like, uh, 3 to the second power, for example, times 1. You see what I'm saying? What I did see was that Matt had come a long way since he was shot. With therapy, he'd been able to stop most of the OCD behavior, and he'd overcome the fears that dominated his life in the early days after the shooting, when he was afraid of every little day-to-day -day thing. I was afraid of toothpaste. And my stepfather took the toothpaste on his finger, and he put it in his mouth. I went, mmm, that's not so bad. So I did the same thing. I put it in my mouth. I'm like hmm, oh, wait, it's really not that bad at all. And then I started brushing my teeth, and now I brush twice a day every day. There was and still is something childlike about Matt since the shooting, more so in the beginning. And it was confusing for people around him because technically he could do everything he did before. More or less, he could speak Danish, which is a foreign language to him, of course. He could play multiple instruments. He could certainly handle a toothbrush. The damage and the changes were of a different nature. Like, he was just not the same guy. My dreams are not as grandiose as they once were. Uh, like, I work at the food bank, and I got to say, I have a tremendous sense of pride every time I go in that place. What do you do there? Um, well, uh, this might be disgusting to people, but I do pest control. 
in the kids' division. It's a pretty big division. I take care of the garbage. I vacuum the floor. Um, before, yeah, good luck getting me into a food bank. Uh, you know, I play maybe charity shows for it or something like that. But to work there, come on. But now I love working there. I'd like to do that for the rest of my life. Uh, the women thing sure has changed tremendously. Like how, like how many girlfriends would you say you had in a week or in a year or before you got shot? <laughs> a, a, a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Like in, in, in a month, I guess I was together with like maybe 10, 12 different people in a month. And then what about after? Since the shooting happened, there were not many people. Three girlfriends in the last 15 years also... For the first time in my life, I was actually faithful to these people. But that's because nobody wanted to be with me. It's interesting because your looks didn't change dramatically, right? I mean, you were still a young, strapping guy after the shooting. Strapping guy. <laughs> Whatever, right? But well, well, there's something else in being a ladies' man. There's more to it than looks, right? A lot of it had to do with... My chemistry as a person, see, before I can manipulate people to get what I wanted all the time. I was very good at that. Like in the music business, to get places, you sort of have to make them think that you're the best at these things, which makes other people want to hear you or want to listen to you or want to get to know what you're good at. Uh, I thought I was the best, but not the best singer, not the best songwriter, not the best performer. But I thought I was a very good combination of all those things. And I felt very confident with that ability. And I felt very confident leading a band, leading a group of people into believing in the band. And Confidence was one of your main talents? It was my main talent. <laughs> now I don't project that image. Uh, do I want to? Sure, I want to. But I, I'm thinking, like, what do I have to offer people? And the thing is, not much. I mean, you know... Uh, I, I like to think I'm a good person. I know that I will not be making money to support anybody, to support a family, or to support someone else. Uh, I don't drive, so I'm kind of stuck somewhere unless people drive me places. I don't have a lot going for me, unfortunately. Yeah, I used to be quite a manipulator. I'm not anymore. People can manipulate me now as opposed to me manipulating them. I'm on the other end of that whole thing. Do you remember what it felt like to be that other guy? Yes, I do. Because you had it. It was in your hands. But um, you, you create a new person for yourself and you become brain injured. You're, you're just a new, a new guy. It's a new life. And if you learn to do that, then you have a better chance of being happier. But it took me like five, six years to realize that. You know, I'm in this brain injury support group at Kessler, and someone said to live the new normal. Aha. Uh -huh. That made a huge difference for me in terms of my goals in life. Now there's hope. Now there's a future. Now there's a purpose. When I went to see Matt, he lived in a home for brain injured people in Patterson, New Jersey, which is not the posh end of the Garden State, to say the least. He's since moved to Hawthorne, New Jersey, but he's still in a rehab facility, and he'd like to move out and live alone. But his family's not sure he could handle it. As eloquent and insightful as he can be, he still struggles with many things. 
He lost about a third of his frontal lobe in the shooting and the subsequent surgery, and he gets exhausted. He can only work a few hours a day, a few times a week. He'll sometimes repeat things, forget things, contradict things he just said, or misrepresent what happened, because he gets fixated on a version he's made up in his mind. They tried getting him a car because he lived pretty far from everything, but he crashed it. And it's a constant balancing act not to underestimate or overestimate Matt. But his progress is astounding. The last time I'd seen him was 10 years before at a holiday party, about five years after the shooting. And he was far rougher around the edges then. Too loud in moments, telling raunchy jokes to somebody's mother, you know, falling through the social cracks, which is typical of people with frontal lobe injuries. And his gauge is still a little off, like he'll blurt out something you told him in confidence or say the wrong thing to the wrong person. But he's gotten much, much better. He can write songs, but not like before. Matt wrote over 3,000 songs before he was shot, and he's only written three songs since. He stopped performing because he can't remember his own songs. And he can still play guitar, but nothing is like it was. Yet he wanted me to know that the changes hadn't been all bad. I think instead of talking all the time, it's probably hard to tell it now because I'm talking into the mic all the time now, but I, I listen a lot more to people than I did before, and I learn more about people and about the way people feel because, you know, before it was just, hey, listen to me, this is my feelings and you should deal with it, like that kind of thing. And now I'm learning to deal with feelings that other people have. And I think that makes me a better person in that way. Matt seems to have relative peace about his new situation. He told me he thought it might be more painful for the people around him who knew him before, you know, adjusting to the new Matt. And he might be right. Matthew was by far the most charismatic person I had ever met. Whatever that magical potion is that makes somebody charismatic, he had it. And that person did die. My best friend, you know, died with Christopher that day. Now, he's still alive, but the person I knew is gone and, and is not coming back. So if you look at it that way, it's still absolutely heartbreaking. How often do you speak to him or see him? I see him regularly, but we speak every day, at least once a day. I mean, I, I still consider him a best friend, but it's obviously not the same relationship. I'll be there for him, but the mutuality is gone. If I needed help, I really couldn't turn to him. Why not? Because I don't think he has the uh, judgment. I mean, he could listen, and I think he would express sympathy, but I don't think he could really give advice as to how to solve the problem. His problem-solving skills are impaired. He can't solve his own problems, let alone whatever my problems may be. So he's still a sweet, lovable guy, but he's a shadow of his former self. You also question, well, what is a person? If you scramble some brain cells, what happens to the person that was there before? What is a person's soul? And where is the soul of, you know, my friend? Whatever the loss, everyone in Matt's life always comes back to the fact that it's a miracle he survived. Not only that, he's walking, talking, working, living. Not the life he had before, but life. His friend Christopher was not so lucky. 
Christopher's mother, Jane, had to travel from her tiny town in the far north of Denmark to a big city in a faraway land to pick up her boy in a coffin. She spoke to me, sometimes in Danish, sometimes in English, about the horror of it all, like the flight home. Det var rejselsfuldt. It was awful. Der sidde i flyverne ved, at han stod nede i lasten. Sitting there, on the plane, knowing that he was downstairs in the cargo. Det var hæsligt. Det var virkelig slemt. The loss was so immense that uh, there was meaning in anything. He had to bury me, not the other way around. It's awful to bury a young child, or young, a young man. You ought to have lost a child yourself in order to understand what it really does to you. Christopher had been home for the holidays just two months before. He stayed here for Christmas and went to Copenhagen to celebrate New Year's Eve. I stood in the window in my flat and looked out and waved at him and he was running because he was in the very last second in order to catch his train and he ran with a big a backpack and waved at me smiling so that's the last sight I had of him Adding to the tragedy of Christopher's murder was the fact that his fiance was pregnant when he was killed And he had just broken this news to Matt at the top of the Empire State Building in the hour before he was killed. He hadn't dared to tell Matt that he was going to be a father because he thought Matt wouldn't like it because it, it might then spoil their energies in, in making the band really top band because some other things were going to, to take Christopher's time. Jane, in fact, has some photos of the guys taken that very day at the top of the Empire State Building before they were shot, where Christopher had just delivered the news and Matt had taken it well, so Christopher was smiling to the camera. Christopher was relieved that now he had told me he stood there on top of the Empire State Building looking ever so happy. Christopher's daughter, Johanna, was born six months after he was killed, so she's never known her dad. Now she's 16 and lives with her mother and stepfather in Copenhagen but she still comes to visit her grandmother Jane up north. She's got a big mouth like Christopher had. <laughs> Do you blame the music or blame New York or blame I Americans? Have, I have, no, 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 not Americans. I. It isn't like that. I think if you keep on thinking, be careful, be careful, don't do this, don't do that, you, you fence yourself in and then you don't live a life. And I know how fond Christopher was of music, and that was the one and only thing for him. So he had to do what he did. And what makes me so good is that he uh, did very many things, the short life he had. He went abroad, and he uh, went to very, in my eyes, expensive restaurants and enjoyed it ever so much. And I said to him, Christopher, you can't afford this. Please, you have promised to be careful. And, and then he laughed, and... Uh, When all this then happened, it made me so good to think that he took the time and he had, he had so many good experiences. That's good to think of. Of course, I have bad days. He's there all the time, you know, as a shadow behind my back. But uh, I mostly have all right good days. Christopher was accepted to the Copenhagen Conservatory of Music on his first try which is pretty rare. Many people try three or four times before they get in, if they get in at all. 
And it's especially remarkable considering that he didn't start playing music until high school. Jane dug out an old-fashioned cassette tape that Christopher had sent her the year before he died. In addition to being in a rock band, Christopher liked to play jazz. He's the guitar player. When he got killed, I, I had the idea that I was going to collect photos and put them in an album to give them to his daughter. But I, I never got to it. I got all the material lying downstairs, and, and but I haven't, I haven't had it done. <laughs> it hurts so much, and, and if I go down and pick things out, it hurts far more, and uh, it's not very often I feel like doing that. Is that enough? She asked me in Danish and stopped the music. But she did let me hear a little more as we sat and watched the evening sky together. In the flat I live in now, which Christopher never has seen, I have a view out to the south, to the west and to the east. So I'm very privileged, I think. There's a beautiful light, ever a good way of sitting and thinking and just staring. It pleases me ever so much. But we did live in Gül when Christopher was here. Me alone with three sons and uh, it was quite a job, but it was very, very good times. The sky is big, it's very big in the northern part of Jutland and that's why I, I, I love staying here. And it changes all the time. It's not the same every day, by far it isn't. Sometimes it's very dark with lots of clouds. But at the moment right now, the sun is setting and it is uh, some shade of faded orange. And in an hour or so, the moon will be up. And when it's full moon here, it's full light, lots of stars. Not like in a town where, where you have all the lights so you can't even see the sky or anything. It's nice and peaceful today. It has been very, very stormy recently. But not now. It's beautiful today. Questions remain as to why this happened. Why this man shot down unsuspecting strangers at the top of the Empire State Building. The alleged perpetrator, at least this is based on identification that was on his person, uh, is 69 years old. His passport indicates that his nationality is Palestinian and in the Palestinian Authority within the State of Israel. He was born in Jaffa back in 1927. Again, according to the documents on his person. That was then-Mayor of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, in a press conference after the attack. In addition to the personal documents, the man, Abu Kamal, was carrying a manifesto found on his body, railing against Israel and the United States, and all, quote, Zionists saying, My restless aim is to murder as many of them as possible, and I've decided to strike at their own den 
in New York at the very Empire State Building. Yet the authorities didn't describe the act as political. They did release the man's manifesto two days after the attack, which prompted the New York Times to write a story under the headline, Kill Zionists. In the article, the Times writer wonders why Giuliani and other officials portrayed the act as that of a deranged man and not as a politically motivated attack. The family of Abu Kamal said he'd lost his life savings, some versions say through gambling, others through bad investments, and that he'd lost his mind as a result. And this became the prevailing story. Then in 2007, 10 years after the shooting, Abu Kamal's daughter, Linda, came forward in the New York Daily News and said that her family had been pressured by Palestinian authorities not to represent the modus as political, for fear that it would derail the peace process in the Middle East. She said that her mother had burned her father's journal outlining his political designs because she worried it would cause trouble for the family. But neither in the U.S. nor in Denmark has the attack been considered a terrorist attack by the authorities. After Linda Kamal came forward, Jane, Christopher's mother, wrote to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Denmark, asking them to consider this, but their response was that there was, quote, no evidence to support it. It bothers Jane, not because she really cares about the politics of it, but when you're trying to come to terms with such a random, violent act, anything that can clarify the story and close the loops in your head is helpful. Not that it would have been better if it was a terrorist attack, she says, but it would have been better if it was clear. And somehow, I sense, the authorities' refusal to acknowledge or even question the political implications feels to Jane like a refusal to acknowledge her loss, so immense inside of her, and so forgotten, so absent from the annals of history. Classifying the act as a political attack would at least make it a footnote in the history of the world. The victims sued the Empire State Building because the building had previously had metal detectors at the entrance, but had removed them because they were deemed, quote, unnecessary. This was a pre-9-11 world. They lost the lawsuit because it wasn't considered reasonably predictable that someone might attack a landmark like the Empire State Building. Again, a very different world not so long ago. What's clear is that Abu Kamal was not affiliated with any terrorist group, and his rantings in the letter do show signs that he'd somehow lost it, and that he wasn't just politically outraged, but also in a deranged state. What's also clear is that nothing can undo what happened, and that's a crying shame, because no one should die so young, especially at the hands of another. Jakob, the guy who didn't go to the Empire State Building that day, because his grandmother had died, was struck by this as he was flying home for his grandmother's funeral. And I was reading a Danish newspaper for the first time in like eight months. And suddenly I saw, what do you call it, the death... uh, Notice. Yeah, the death notice. And then it was my grandmother's name, Sasha Gorevitz, from this year to this year, showing that she was 86 years old. And then just below there was the death notice, which said Christopher Burmeister and where it says that from this year to this year that he was 27. And the thing I felt there was actually, I got peace in mind with my grandmother dying because it was just like, okay, this is the way you have to end life, but not like this with Christopher.
That was The Long Shadow, produced by Leah Tao for her podcast, Strangers, from KCRW. For a link to more episodes of Strangers, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Support for ReSound is provided by the Logan Theater in Chicago's Logan Square. This month, the Logan celebrates Nerdy November with showings of Double Dragon, Super Mario Brothers, and more. And on November 13th, they'll partner with Nerdalogs to host an alpha game night. There's more information at thelogantheater.com. Coming up, a random find leads to a treasure trove of lost music and its journey to its rightful owner. Stay with us. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxheim. Today, we're listening to stories about randomness. Who doesn't love the idea of discovering a hidden treasure? It's the stuff of books, movies, children's games, speed dating. We love this storyline. Innocent person stumbles upon seemingly ordinary thing, person, place, only to discover its rarity, worth, magic. But in our next story, a very real man is in the right place at the right time when a phone call turns the hip-hop world upside down. Here's Pat Masidi Miller with Jay Dilla's Lost Scrolls. Meet Jeff. He runs a record store out in Detroit. I'm Jeff Bubeck from UHF Records. UHF is a 95% vinyl, good old-fashioned record shop. Got soul, R&B, blues, soundtrack, country, classic rock, pop. I've collected my whole life. You know, I started eight years old collecting records, and now I have... I mean, look around. (laughs) Place is covered. Yeah. In talking with Jeff, I was asking him where he gets all his records. He told me he hunts them down. He'll buy from collectors, go to estate sales. You know, I've gone to storage auctions before, long before the Storage Wars and Pickers or any of those shows that are on now. It's nothing like that, really. I mean, there's, for the most part, there's garbage out there. And then Jeff told me a story about one of his best finds in his decades of collecting. It started off when Jeff got a call from a woman who owned a storage locker. Apparently somebody was years behind on rent and left behind a unit filled with records. So Jeff went and checked it out. There was probably 6,000 records in there. Tons of 70s jazz. Really a lot of off-the-wall obscure stuff, you know. There was a little bit of everything in there. Boxes upon boxes stacked up. There was stuff that had gotten wet, you know, stuff that actually had black mold growing on it. I mean, it was just, you know what I mean? It was, it was a mess. But in looking through all the records, he saw some stuff that was worth investing in and bought them, and then paid to have them stored in the locker for a couple more months. And one particular day, I, I went to the storage bin to pick up some boxes, and I noticed a... a a tub in the back of the storage bin. And uh, I opened the tub and it was just full of cassettes. It was just, you know, mixed tapes, homemade tapes, you know. And then there was some junk mail in there. Uh, All of the junk mail had the name Yancey on it. Maureen Yancey, and there were some pieces that said James Yancey. Didn't think twice of it. Another few days had passed, and I have no idea why I did it, but I googled James Yancey. 
the first thing that popped up was the Wikipedia page for Jay Dilla. Producer extraordinaire. If you're not up on Jay Dilla, the man is a legend. He was a producer behind tons of classic songs for artists like The Far Side, A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Common, Busta Rhymes, Erica Badu. In hip-hop circles, he's thought of as one of the greatest of all time. And basically, I just turned him to Tommy, my partner who was sitting next to me, and said, get the hell out of here. Do you know who I think this stuff belongs to? And basically, holy <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what are we going to do? In 2006, Dilla passed away from complications from lupus. He was only 32. And since his death, People have been madly searching to find anything and everything Dilla related. So to find Jay's personal record collection, it was huge. Because in it would be the records that Dilla had sampled and turned into hits. The phone started ringing. There were calls. It was like instant backlash. Everyone wanted it. But then they also had a problem with me. What business does he have selling Jay's stuff? You know what I mean? That's, that's what it was. Who the f- are you? People were going crazy over Dilla's record collection. But remember how Jeff said that there was a bunch of cassette tapes? I opened the tub and it was just full of cassettes. Some of those tapes, Dilla had recorded on. They had titles like Beats and Rough Ideas, hinting at unreleased music. A beat tape from Dilla? That's gold. Private collectors, fans, people were offering him tens of thousands of dollars to get a piece. I'm human and I seen dollar signs for a minute. Even if I didn't take the offer from them, I could have, you know, put a cassette at a time up on eBay and probably made, you know, loads of money. A record label called him. We understand that you found uh, tapes containing Jay Dilla's music. That content of those tapes is our property. You'll be compensated for it, but we're coming to get it. It wasn't cool. I mean, it was chaos, and I was like, I I wanted to do nothing but crawl under a rock, you know what I mean? Step back. I'm not taking calls. Leave me alone. The collection's gone. It's no longer on the premises. Go away. And during all the madness, Jeff had something else on his mind. Honestly, the first thing I thought of was that Wikipedia page. Due to Dilla's debt, the family receives no income from projects. Dilla's children are being supported by the Social Security from their mothers. Likewise, Miss Yancey still lives in the same Detroit ghetto, also in tremendous debt. After reading that, it says it right there. It's like, okay. And it's like, where looks the money? Here's Maureen and his family, right in the same place they were back in the beginning, you know. But how? How could it be that the mother of a platinum-selling producer would be in debt? I mean, he made hits. He was award-winning. So I called up Della's mom, Maureen, and she invited me over for a talk. Come on in. Good to see you. I'm Maureen Yancey. Jay Dilla is my son. He is the most genius beatmaker that ever existed. Although he's passed on, his work still lives. 
welcome to my umbo <laughs> We're drinking some black coffee in a minute. Okay, cool. <laughs> Where we come from is a place we call Konigas. A visitor at her home, the same house that Jay grew up in, deep in Detroit, in Conant Gardens. The neighborhood here is very, very urban, to say the least. It resembles in some places a war zone like Iraq, (laughs) as you know. A lot of people have moved away because of the conditions in the city. It's a lack of uh, support in our area, as you can see. But then there are those that are dedicated to the community that try to keep it moving and that are proud to be here. Maureen told me that the last couple years of Jay's life were mostly spent in the hospital, fighting his illness. Maureen stayed with him, helped nurse him. But while he was in the midst of all this treatment... That a payment was late and the insurance company did not honor it. And even though it might have been a day late, it didn't matter. Being an insurance company that's in it for profit, they dropped him. Because it had been like four years worth of this sickness going on. You know, he was so ill. Of course, they didn't want to pay for every hospital stay that he had. The last nine, ten months, everything was out of pocket. Every hospital stay, each bill uh, averaged a quarter of a million dollars. That was a bi-monthly bill. That's $250,000 twice a month. And that's not including flying out specialists or doctors or prescriptions. Dilla's illness was very expensive, and soon he fell into debt. And when Dilla's funds were gone, Maureen stepped up. I didn't care what it was. I was going to sign my life away for them to give him all the care that he needed, and I, which I did in certain instances, because when he didn't have insurance, I signed off on a lot of that. And they said, well, you know, you'll be responsible I did not care. I said, well, if I had to scrub hospital floors (laughs) to work it off, you know. So you went broke? Oh, yeah. Had to. It's my son. Maureen gave up near everything. She sold her house, closed down her business, all the while hoping Jay could beat the sickness and get back to the work he loved. He lived for music. I mean, the man was a powerhouse. Even when his health didn't improve, Maureen, with some friends, set up music equipment right in his hospital room, and he worked. It was there that he created his last album, Donuts. Okay, okay. There comes a time. It was released three days before he passed. There, to date, has been no compensation from the estate to any of the heirs. And six years after Dilla had been gone, Maureen was still struggling. And when Jeff, who had found himself sitting on a potential gold mine of music, heard about that? That really, you know, that struck a chord with me. I just felt, you know, there's just such an injustice. I'll be damned if I'm giving it to any record company. In the moment, I just was trying to do the right thing, you know what I mean? So Jeff got in touch with Maureen. She drove across the city, and they met at the storage facility. And he unlocks this, like a garage, you know, door. Went back into the bin and pulled the tub out from the back and 
he just shows me the bins that were too heavy to lift. And so I'm looking, and I'm like, what in the world, you know? And I popped open the lid. And it was silence for a few minutes. And that moment, it's like she's seen him again, you know what I mean? Because just the silence there, and it was like, this is heavy. When I um, saw my son's handwriting, God, that was something uh, profound. He wrote notes in there about uh, uh, things that he wants to do for me. To see those notes and to hear his voice as I read them, I could hear him saying it. It just touched me to, touched my heart to no end. It was her son's stuff, you know. I told her, take it with you, it's yours. Take it. I gave her a hug and, you know, she was, she was thrilled. It felt really good that she had it again. You know, it was like, yeah! Back in the right hands. And though some of them look like they'd have some Adela's music on them, most of the cassettes, well, they were just regular tapes, like you used to be able to buy at the store. Today, you probably wouldn't pay 10 cents for them at a flea market. But in talking with one of Dilla's close friends... Frank Nitt suggests, I think you better listen to them because your son hid a lot of music in his, in his tapes. Maureen sat down, loaded up the tapes, pressed play, and... I was blown away and my mouth dropped from the very first one. It was stuff on it that we had never heard before. Turn it up, baby. I didn't expect to hear his voice in any of the music. He's not sick. He's not suffering. And he's just live to his fullest capacity. On the hundreds of cassettes that Maureen now has, Dilla had left music and lots of it. The material is, oh my, it was overwhelming. There are in the high hundreds of tracks. Hours and hours and hours of unreleased Dilla music was found on the cassettes. And along with some studio master reels, Maureen says there's enough material for never-before-heard music to be coming out for years. It's the Lost Scrolls. <laughs> it's the Lost Scrolls. The reason for titling it the Lost Scrolls is because it has a spiritual meaning. It's like uh, the Ark of the Covenant for me. And <laughs> I was invited to hear the coveted Lost Scrolls. Now trust me, these recordings are well guarded. But Maureen let me record a small piece of our time listening together. So how does it feel to be listening to this music? I feel simply wonderful listening to my son's creations. 
It's uh, none like it. He is the master. And uh, my heart is happy. My ears are happy, you know. I, I feel his, I can feel his soul in his music. Dilla was, was my backbone, my support, because we had a bond that was so special with our love for music and our desire to help the other one get to where they wanted to be in this world. We already were close, and then nursing him in California, we were more one than ever. So when he left, I was standing alone. I never mourned normally, not knowing whether to be angry or to cry. I couldn't cry. I hadn't shed a tear. At his funeral, I didn't cry. People were waiting for me to break down, which I didn't even understand. Why no tears? I was in denial of everything, and I just, I just had this void. Then, through the heart of a good man, Jeff Bubeck, God would open up a door and, and give me pieces of my son back. It was held, held back for this time. It wasn't meant for me to have it before now. And it brought back what Dilla said to me in California. He was in the wheelchair. He grabbed my hands, both of them. And he said, I want to thank you for all that you, all that you have done. And I want you to know you're going to be all right. I promise you. You're going to be all right. You know. Are you doing you okay? You want to take a break? I'm no. No? It's the first tear. It's been, I guess I needed that. I think it's the first one since he passed. Thanks for that. Let me turn that water faucet on. <laughs> because I always hold it back. He has uh, proven to me that he's looking out for me. And I'm looking at him, he's looking at me right now, saying, Lady, I told you you would be all right. That was Jay Dilla's Lost Scrolls, produced by Pat Masidi Miller for Snap Judgment from NPR. Maureen Yancey has begun releasing her son's rediscovered music and continues her work with the Jay Dilla Foundation to raise awareness about lupus and bring music programs to youth. She's also working on a book and film about Dilla's life and legacy. Go to Grandma and give her a hug and kiss. You never know what you're going to find when you pick up an old home movie or ragged cassette tape that you found in your attic or at a thrift store. Whose is it? How did it get here? What's on it? Producer David Weinberg appreciates this anonymous voyeurism in a visceral way, which is why he began his aptly named podcast, Random Tape. Here's one of his stories called The Diet. 
So you do it like this? They'll hear me? Okay, uh, my name is Paul Beck. I am of sound mind. I have AIDS and I was dying two months ago and did not like the way my body felt. Now, since I started this a month ago, I have had no pain. But all I can say is that I wish to live or die on this great diet. If I go to sleep and don't wake back up, I will sue anybody who interferes with this, no matter what is going on here. This tape was sent to me by Logan Jaffe. She bought it at a yard sale in Gainesville, Florida. And it's a tape that this, this guy Paul made for his family to tell them that he was going to go on this diet, even though he had AIDS, and that this diet was supposed to cure him. And if it didn't, he didn't want them interfering. Donnie, I want you to back me. My brother Donald. Mikey, my cousin Michael. I want you to back me. Jimmy and Barry, don't let him move me. This is what I want, baby. Okay? My mom will swing to wanting to save me. And I don't want to be saved that way. I am going to cure myself. So leave me alone if I'm in a coma. Let Barbara put the grapes in my mouth juice and just leave me alone. I know what I'm doing and I've never been sounder and I believe in God. Paul M. Beck, Union, New Jersey, 1024 Brighton Street. Because there are other Paul Becks and I do not trust our society or the people in it. Let me live or die by my own making. Thank you very much. So I asked Logan what information she had about this tape and if there was a way we could track Paul down and find out what happened to him. The guy in the recording, um, I don't, I, I, it wasn't the guy that I bought the actual tape from. I, I'm not sure how they were actually related. Because the guy in the tape does eventually pass away. And I know that from another tape. It disrupted my whole life. I sure did come back excited. I know these feelings will pass. I fell apart when Paul died. This isn't going to do it. I won't let you or anybody cripple me. I may limp for a little while, but I'm going to be all right. I had hoped it was going to be with you. C'est la vie. That was The Diet from David Weinberg's podcast, Random Tape. When he's not collecting random tape, David is a reporter for Marketplace. To hear the second part of this story, in which you find out much more about the C'est la vie woman, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Here is an event you will not want to miss. Nancy Updike, founding producer of This American Life, will be in Chicago Sunday afternoon, November 9th, to talk about the bright side of dark things. I, I want to talk about vice and foibles and blunders and people getting in over their head um, and all these things that are really part of the pleasure of listening to everything. Meet the one and only Nancy Updike. Sunday, November 9th at 3.30 at the Holiday Inn Chicago Mart Plaza. Buy tickets at thirdcoast.brownpapertickets.com. 
That's thirdcoast.brownpapertickets.com. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Annie Kostakis. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Art Factory Screen Printing, producing screen-printed and embroidered apparel for businesses, organizations, schools, and events in Chicago since 2005. Information regarding quotes and image galleries is available at artfactorytees.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.